Every week, every day, there are discoveries that will shape our future. The Research Beat, brought to you by Audemic, speaks to the unsung heroes of groundbreaking research and those laying the foundations for the advances of tomorrow. Why? Because we believe the more we discover, the more we connect the dots, the more we push our understanding of the world forward. On today's show, we welcome Yasmin Nida, marine microbiologist, science communicator, and founder of Marine Biology with Yas. Welcome to the Research Beat. Today's guest is Yasmin Mida, also known as Marine Biology with Yaz. Yasmin, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited for this. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your research? Absolutely. So I'm a PhD student through the Marine Biological Association and the University of Exeter. And my research is on these tiny algae known as microalgae called diatoms. And you can't see them with the naked eye, so you need to use a microscope. So I would say I'm technically a marine microbiologist. And that's where this term comes from, because I can't see any of the work that I do, essentially. And what I do is I study these diatoms to see how they interact with their environment. So they can be marine and freshwater organisms, but I'm mainly studying them in the marine environment. And just like you and I, how we would interact with our environment, you can imagine if we touch something that's really, really hot, we would instantly move away. And that's because we have this complex nervous system that can really allow us to send signals through our bodies. But because diatoms are more plant-like, they don't have this mechanism that we have. So what I'm doing is I'm really looking into their cell biology to try and understand what it is that they have and they possess that makes them be able to rapidly respond to a really changing environment. They are really strange and unusual little organisms, and they're important for all kinds of reasons, which we'll get into later. But can you tell us basically, what are they and what makes them so special? So diatoms are really special because they are essentially in this glass house and they have a silica cell wall around their edge and they are beautiful and really intricate. So if you ever Google a picture of diatoms, you will see so many different sizes, shapes, and they just look absolutely beautiful. A lot of people love having pictures on their walls and stuff of them, which I think is amazing. And they actually function through uh, photosynthesis. So they can absorb carbon from the atmosphere and they can produce oxygen. So technically every fifth breath that we take is because of these diatoms. That's actually a really amazing statistic. And just on their visual beauty, are we able to see them with the naked eye in the water And if not, how do you observe them in the water and see these magnificent coats that they have? So we can't see them with the naked eye. We would have to look at them under a microscope. For any research that I do, we would take samples from the ocean. We can use different filters at different sizes. So you can filter out any of the larger organisms and you can maintain to get the diatoms that you're after at certain sizes. So we would take samples from the sea and then we would go into the lab and look under a microscope. Is there a kind of pleasure in just being able to carry out your normal research because you get to look at these all the time under the scope? 
Yeah, absolutely. A lot of us that work in the lab on algae, sometimes if there's been a storm or if something's happened or if we get different times of the year, we'll just go out, take some samples and it's kind of a hobby. It might be a weird hobby for some people, but we're like, oh, it's after hours. The microscope's free. Shall we just go and get some samples? And then we'll sort of share between each other being like, oh, I've just picked up some seawater. Do you guys also want to look? And I think this is a running theme that some people in the lab just even if it's not marine or diatoms they'll put out a bowl or something to catch rainwater and see what ends up in there so a lot of the work we do we just love being able to look at microbes which i guess is quite geeky but we love it it sounds like a lot of fun and do you ever so are you able to take pictures of what you capture under the microscope we can take pictures from what we see under the microscope so some of the microscopes are really complex and very intelligent in the way that they've been built and designed, that a lot of the stronger microscopes are connected to a computer and you can have different light fields or ranges of how you view them. And then you can automatically take pictures through this computer or what you can do if you're using more of a basic light microscope, you can just either use your phone to take pictures or you can actually get a mounted camera. So that's how we can get loads of beautiful images of them that you'd see when you Google them. And I guess this is where these posters on the wall ultimately come from yes people are really trying to jazz up the lab so a lot of people <laughs> have been tasked with can you get the best images and mm. a lot of different societies or companies actually run competitions about the best pictures of algae you can get whether they're microscopic or macro algae or just microbes in general so it's a running theme that a lot of scientists are always almost competing with each other to win a prize for the best picture of a microbe so these organisms are not only beautiful, there's quite a lot of mystery surrounding them. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So diatoms, obviously, they are really tiny, so you can't see them under the naked eye, but they have so much potential. They are essentially one of the reasons that we are here today, because they're able to produce this oxygen that we need as humans. But they've also got loads of other potentials that could be great and exploited for use for humans. So there's this rapidly growing field of biotechnology or biotech for short and people are essentially looking at diatoms and how complex they are and saying well actually they produce these fats or what we know them as lipids and this could potentially be used as an alternative fuel source what we call biofuel and they also have loads of different nutrients inside them so we could use that for either food or for cosmetics or new medicines but we really don't understand the basics of how they respond, how they survive in the ocean. And that's really where a lot of this research comes in. We need to know the basics before we can really explore this potential that they have. And along with those things you've just mentioned, they're producing a lot of oxygen, like you told us at the outset. So these organisms are really connected to climate change and could play a big role in efforts to improve the health of the planet. Absolutely. Diatoms are really one resource that we could use as sort of a natural remedy to fight climate change. What people are trying to do now is work towards being carbon neutral. So if you were to use these diatoms in this biotech field, you would essentially grow them. And while you're growing them, you wouldn't be exploiting the resources because they would be producing oxygen and taking up carbon dioxide at the same time. But again, these are problems within the, the wider field of biology or within oceanography, because we need to really understand a lot more about the roles that these diatoms play. 
they obviously interact with other phytoplankton and other organisms in the ocean but we're still unsure on what that role is how involved they are with all of these other things and it creates this massive food web but we still really need to dive into understanding how they survive on their own before we go into these bigger interactions and networks. When you take a drop or a sample of seawater or freshwater and you put it under a microscope in the lab, is it like all of those tiny organisms are still in their natural habitat? So you're able to get a very good picture. It would be like you were actually in the water. Yes, definitely. I think it's quite difficult because a lot of things change when you take things out of the ocean environment. Obviously, a lot of things happen like turbidity, salt and different stresses. But also, that's one thing that we're trying to do in the lab is to try and make things environmentally relevant, that what we're doing in the lab does represent what we would see in the ocean. But if I'm honest, that is really difficult. And a lot of the time when you take things out of their natural environment, you might see weird and wonderful things happen that you're like, well, we might not see this if this was to naturally happen. But that's why we do a lot of controlled experiments to really try and mimic what we would find. But of course, there's always going to be variation from what really happens. It's almost like things that happen under your eye. You just you look at it and you think, yeah, this is really great. This is happening. It's working. My experiments are what I expect. But then you might read some other research that has taken it from a different area in the ocean and it's completely the opposite. So it is definitely difficult to determine what's going on. So what kinds of discoveries are you making about the diatoms in your research? So one thing with the diatoms, my research focuses on how diatoms sense their environment. What we're currently looking at is Although they're plant-like, they don't have a central nervous system to really send signals to respond to an environmental change. What they do have is calcium. So maybe you've heard of it because you think of it in milk or, you know, this really interesting nutrient or vitamin. And what we see is a calcium ion is used as a signaling molecule. So instead of these diatoms having a central nervous system, they have a completely different way to send these signals. And this is all through this one molecule. But this one molecule can detect changes in lots of different environmental stresses. So when I talk about an environmental stress, this could be that there's a temperature change. So if it's suddenly getting really cold in the environment, which can be quite common, or if it suddenly heats up, how do these diatoms react to that? And they use calcium. But then they can also use calcium to respond to things like a change in phosphorus, which is another really important nutrient. And so there's all these different aspects that are going on and it's really hard to determine what actually is happening on the cell level. So with this, we are trying to understand how the cell can then respond to this change. And with that, we are able to actually add a fluorescent tag. So this essentially means that if you look under the microscope, you could see the diatom to be glowing, which isn't necessarily a natural occurrence. It's just a way for us to determine how it's happening on a cellular level. And this is really, really interesting because this mechanism also happens with plants, but mm. it doesn't happen as much in other organisms. So we're really trying to understand more about evolution, how they react, and why is this mechanism important? Does it give them a selective advantage? Does it mean that they can survive better over other species? So these organisms are responding to changes in nature. They're almost like a thermometer. Yes. So they can detect these changes. So what I should have mentioned is that diatoms are actually single-celled. So that's just one cell that's essentially floating around in the ocean. 
but yet they have this really complex mechanism that can detect changes. So absolutely, like a thermometer, they can really quickly detect these changes. And what I'm looking at specifically is changes to phosphates in the ocean. A lot of what you hear about in the news could be that on land in terrestrial environments, a lot of food crops for agriculture, they add phosphorus-based fertilizers. This can then enter the ocean system through runoff from fertilizer from crops and cause algal blooms. Algal blooms can either be quite negative or they can be positive. From a negative point of view, if you imagine an algal bloom is essentially a mass of algae growing, and because they obviously need light to produce oxygen and take up carbon dioxide through photosynthesis, they're then outcompeting the fish that are below them. They're going to block all of the sunlight, and then this can cause changes and other organisms are trying to compete with them. So we want to understand more about this phosphorus and how they can really detect it, the changes, and why they then can react in these either blooms or they can suddenly just, they won't be a bloom. And it's very dependent on seasons as well. So we're really just unpicking what's going on on this really kind of minute level rather than a massive population level. And thinking about the diatoms as a kind of thermometer, are they really just the victims of what's going on around them or do they have some kind of control over their actions? I think this is something that we're trying to explore. As we are looking into diatoms, what we found is that a lot of them aren't able to move with the oceans. A lot of diatoms aren't able to move towards areas of nutrients or away from predators. They're essentially at the mercy of the oceans that if there's different currents, they will just go with it. But other research suggests that they could maybe move within the water column. But I think mm -hmm. a lot more research needs to be done on how they can regulate their movement or why others don't necessarily move. But essentially, they are just faced with this different changing environment and they can't just run away. For example, if we needed to move from a really hot environment, we're like, oh, it's a sauna. We need to leave this place. We could leave. Whereas they're stuck with it. And that's why they need such a complex system to adapt to a constantly changing environment. Really, really interesting organisms that sound like they're straddling two different worlds. They've got some elements that you might associate with an animal, but some elements you associate with plants and maybe no control over what they do and how they behave. And they seem to be part of a really beautiful kind of zoo under the water. And I want to ask you about this phenomenon we find. Many people always associate marine biology with bigger animals like whales and sharks. And I definitely think they overlook the diatoms, the tiny little things that make up this fantastic aquarium. Why do you think people are not paying so much attention to the tiny things? People don't pay attention to the tiny things in the ocean because let's face it, when you hear some news about a shark or a whale, it is pretty cool. And I'm not going to deny that. I do think that is amazing. And they are really important that we study those organisms. And it has this charismatic kind of thing that's going on that the news and the press, everyone's really almost hyped up these organisms, these sharks to be, wow, look at them. There's films about sharks, but I've not seen any films on diatoms. <laughs> so maybe we, we need to just push the media so that they're making films about algae. I think it is really difficult and this is why I entered this space and I do a lot of science communication trying to promote this difference that yes I am a marine biologist but I'm not in the water, I don't dive, I don't scuba dive, 
I just work in a lab, but my research is heavily related to marine environments and climate change. And it's trying to get this out of people's heads that when I tell people I'm a marine biologist, they say, oh, I found this thing on a beach or let's go to the aquarium. What's this fish? I have no idea about most of the other generic marine biology stuff. And it's just such a vast field. Yeah, there are so many different possibilities within the field. And for me, the tiny things are as beautiful as the big things. Um, it would certainly be interesting to put a script for Diatoms, the movie, in front of Steven Spielberg. And yeah. Let's see what happens. I think but, it could work. Maybe we, that, that could be our task. Yeah, we should go for it. We should. Um, you picked up on it a little bit there, but what inspired you? to get into marine biology in the first place? I think talking about inspiration is quite a difficult thing. I would say I've never grown up to be someone who's always had a set path or always known what I've wanted to do. I meet people like that and that is absolutely great that people have this vision. For me, I have always found that my journey has been very fluid and I've just gone with the flow. And that might be quite cliche, but I think Sometimes I've found that I really enjoy different aspects of things and really not known where to go. And for me, getting into marine biology, the inspiration was that I had done a module at university for my undergrad. I did biological sciences, so it was a lot more broad. It wasn't specifically marine science. And I found that there was this idea that you could take the ecology and mix it with human biology and find something that can benefit the two. And it's really important that we conserve the oceans, but yet a lot of people are so disconnected to the oceans. And so for me, my point of view coming into marine science was how can we merge the two that we can use the ocean, but make it relevant for people. And this is that idea of going into biotechnology, being able to show people that actually this algae that is often overlooked or is this sludge on the ponds that you find and no one really cares about it it is really important and by showcasing all of the different aspects that diatoms can build up to and work towards I think it gives more of a sense of people can relate to it and I think that's what is a major aspect of marine science and I felt it was almost something that I love to do that I could connect these two seemingly separate fields of this human biology and ecology, merge them together and really study at this interface. It's a recurring theme that we're seeing with our guests that often they're able to take one world and then a second world and put them together to make a kind of alchemy, which really drives th their passion for their specific research. I agree 100%. I think that is really important and especially that you can look at it from different angles makes brilliant researchers who can see things from one aspect saying there's a really key environmental aspect to this but actually we also need to make it relevant for the public to want to fund this research and understand why this research is being done and really create this big picture. So before you came to these kind of moments of alchemy had you ever felt any kind of connection with the sea? I don't think I really had a connection with the sea. I think I grew up in a area that was quite landlocked. I didn't really go to the beach that much. Or if I went on holiday, I was someone who spent more time around the pool and not the sea because I hated the sand because it just went everywhere. And I was like, it's so much more effort going for a swim in the sea than if we just buy a pool. And I think 
there's this big misconception with marine scientists that you always want to be in the ocean, that you can swim for miles and that is your passion. I love learning about the ocean, but it doesn't necessarily mean I need to be in the ocean all the time. <laughs> no, it's kind of a funny presumption to make that all, um, all marine biologists would love to swim for miles and miles. <laughs> it, it might not in fact be true. <laughs> yes. And I, I don't really spend time on a boat or anything like that, whereas some researchers that are in the marine field do get to do that, which is also great. I would love if I got more aspects of field work in my research, but I'm also very content on land, standing on my own two feet and working in the lab. I think there's a whole world of different personalities and styles in, in something like this. And the work that one group of people does helps the other group. So the ones that venture out into the ocean and perhaps swim for miles, maybe they couldn't do what they do without the people who love working in the lab and building up the knowledge in the picture. Completely. One, two, three, four. The Research Beat is brought to you by the Audemic app, a platform for students and researchers which allows you to listen to academic articles and take notes easily. On the go and simple to share. Changing subjects, Yaz, you recently completed an internship. So can you tell us about this? So as a marine microbiologist, this internship that I did as part of the PhD or in between the PhD is going to be completely different. So I'm going to flip the script and probably blow a lot of minds here because I was working in a biotech startup and I wasn't working on any marine organisms. I was working on terrestrial fungi. And it wasn't really these mushrooms that you would see that grow in the fields. It was, again, microorganisms. So this fungi that you needed to use a microscope to see. So this is really bringing this interdisciplinary techniques and skills that I've learned through the PhD and doing my microbiology degree and transferring that into another organism. So the company was aiming to make vegan cheese. But what I wanted to do here was really focus on this climate sustainability technology. And this is a new scope that people are doing. Um, we do know that there are a lot of issues with cows and cattle farming. And one problem with that is the alternatives that we have to cheese or dairy products is that the textures aren't the same. It's not great. It doesn't taste that nice. Um, what this company, Better Dairy, are working towards is making really tasty vegan cheese without using the animal at all. And that for me is something that is really important that although I'm not still working on the marine environment, it's got the same aspects that I'm trying to work towards, which is climate and driven. I can absolutely see the thread there, the connection between your PhD work and this internship. There's the same principle underlying why you're doing it. How does something like an internship complement your main PhD work? So how does this internship connect to what you do and how has it changed your perspective, improved things? When I started the PhD, I think I went into it with the attitude that I wanted to end up in industry. And I never knew what industry was. I never knew what that actually meant. What kind of industry is it? No idea. And there's always this misconception that people normally talk about academia when you're doing a PhD saying that it's quite toxic or it can be quite a difficult environment that you have to work really long hours and there's a lot of expectations on you. 
But I think by doing this internship in industry, you realize that science is a passion and that a lot of people are always going to work a lot of hours or there's always going to be an expectation. There's always going to be something more to do because science just doesn't stop. You can't just leave your work in the office and just shut the door and go home because your mind will always come up with different ideas or you'll always be thinking about it when you are passionate. And I think for me, that just solidified the idea that if you go into research, you can just really come up with these brilliant ideas, work with brilliant minds. And it just made me fall in love with science all over again to see that I can work on projects that have a real outcome. They have a product that can get to market and they can also do research that you might not be able to see the end goal or with an immediate end goal or a product in sight. But what you can see is the potential for the future and why your research is important. And I think just doing the industry internship, it showed me how to be a confident researcher. And it was just incredible to know that there's so much out there in terms of jobs, careers, and it's just made me really excited for this journey. It's wonderful to hear. And I think it's a really fantastic point because sometimes in a PhD, that academia stays in academia. It doesn't necessarily connect to industry or the professional world outside. Sometimes it doesn't and sometimes it does. And in your case, you were able to make this connection and it actually kind of strengthened your passion and ignited it even further in a way. Would you recommend something like this to anybody in your position doing a PhD in the sciences? I would say a thousand percent. If anyone has the opportunity, the potential to do an internship in between whatever it may be, if they're doing an undergrad, a master's or a PhD, or even if they're still at school, I would say that it is something that people should definitely do. I also understand that there are a lot of barriers to doing things like internships because of cost. And I think there are now a lot more resources that people can find to help with finances, to help with support, and even help to apply for these things. Because before, I would have never felt confident to even put myself out there and say, actually, take me on as an intern. Please have me, you know, I want to learn some skills. But I know that a lot of other people do it. So I think if you're listening to this and you're thinking it might be a good idea, I'd say go for it, find the resources that you can and just do it. You definitely won't regret it. It sounds like really good advice. And speaking about confidence there, we're going to change the subject again because you are a prolific science communicator. Thank you. Um, which may have something to do with confidence. So can you just tell us all about your science communication? So I am a science communicator through Instagram, which is my main platform. I started an Instagram profile mainly to just show my family who a lot of them haven't been to university. They don't have any scientific background. I started it to show them this is what I get up to. And most of it was actually because even my family were like, oh, I've just seen this documentary on a shark. Can you tell me about it? And I'm like, not that kind of marine biologist. <laughs> and I just wanted to teach people that there is this broad field and I don't study the fish or the sharks or the whales and dolphins that people associate with marine biology. And so I just created this platform, not thinking anything of it. And suddenly it just started to get a following and it just kept building and people were really engaging with it. And it made me realize that people are interested in this tiny bit of research that you often forget has this major effect. Are you ever surprised by 
the number and the passion of the people who follow you and take an interest in what you're doing? I'm surprised every single day. I get some messages or even people that I know, they will say, oh, I met someone that knows you. And I'm like, wow, I can't <laughs> believe it. And even now, coming back to this point that you said about confidence, I would say that I really struggle with confidence. And that's definitely something that I'm trying to work towards, which would probably contradict this profile that I have where I've got a following on Instagram. But that doesn't always correspond to having confidence of your scientific ability, of your public speaking, or even if what you're putting out is important. Sometimes there are days where I sit and think, does anyone actually really care? Why do people follow? And there's always this imposter syndrome that can come back and, and it sometimes can impact you. But I think it's always just reminding of why you've started and, and why you should carry on. I think it's a really great way to use social media because it's really bringing something of value and something of worth and you're illuminating your research for people to learn about and discover and clearly they take a great interest in it and it must feel so good when you see that you've helped somebody to learn something or op opened up their mind in some way. Yes, thank you. It really is. But I will be honest and say when I initially started the page, I was embarrassed of it. I thought people are going to just think you're not serious, you're not a proper scientist, because look at you, you just take selfies in the lab. And I did have some mixed signals and messages from some of the senior scientists in the research facilities that are sort of like, oh, are you just recording again? And they'd laugh it off. But maybe deep down, I, I thought it took a bit of a sting that I was like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing it. But then as things have grown, I've realized that there is a whole community out there that does the same thing. And that's also really helped to strengthen this association with doing science communication and outreach and knowing that people want to see it and that you shouldn't be embarrassed by it. But I think even now I'm still coming to terms with it. People call me an influencer. I'd almost cringe and be like, no, that's not me. I wouldn't call myself an influencer. But I think through social media, that is what it is. When you start to gain a following, you technically are. Yeah, I guess so. And it is really great to hear that you push through perhaps a bit of what you perceived as resistance from some of those around you. And you went on and did what you wanted to do and opened up this world of communication and, and gained a following and an audience and yes, became an influencer. <laughs> Thanks. Why is science communication so important for researchers and perhaps not just for scientists, but for all researchers? Science communication is one of the most important aspects of researchers in general, because what we've seen from the pandemic is there's such a dissociation between the scientists and the general public. A lot of the general public don't want to believe scientists. They think it's this kind of thing that's not accessible to everyone or that scientists are lying or doing something that people don't really understand. And this is also why making this science Instagram page is that we're regular people. We still do exactly the same things. I try and include some lifestyle aspects. If I'm going for some drinks or cocktails with some friends, you can see that, yes, I do science research, but also we are regular people and we still have this human side of us and that people should understand us as people, not just this kind of scientist that they think they can't understand certain aspects. But there's also a problem with a lot of the scientists. They sometimes use a lot of jargon no one understands even I will go to a scientific conference and I sit in the audience and sometimes I think 
maybe I'm just stupid because I have no idea what is going on. But then you slowly realize that it's just communication. People aren't telling you in a way that you can understand, but it doesn't mean that you're stupid or you don't understand something. It's just this idea that scientists should really communicate, even with other experts in the field, just in a generic way that every person can understand. And that's sort of my duty as a scientist to make this accessible for everyone because the public have a right to know about what research is going on. They're also the ones that are funding the research through taxes. So they should be aware of what's happening and they should be able to understand it. I think it's so important to maintain that conversational tone that you just outlined, where it's possible for different layers of society to see what the other level is doing and have a conversation and be able to understand because ultimately researchers are doing what they're doing to help, to try to make the world a better place. And it shouldn't be a kind of a closed door. It should be something open. There should be a conversation. It should be allowed to breathe, I think. Absolutely. I think there's a real disconnect between the scientists and the public, and we just need to find that gap and bridge that gap. And as a new scientist going into the field, we would call ourselves early career researchers, that we have that ability to change this narrative. And I think there's so many other people also doing this on social media and we just need to keep pushing forward until it becomes the norm. Exactly. I think, like you said, your platform as a science communicator has the capacity to change the way people look at this. Definitely. And that's something that you can carry forward into the future. I think it's such an exciting space to be in because people have so much to say. And even I'm learning so much about what other people are doing. And I would probably never come across it apart from how I see things on either TikTok or through Instagram. What advice would you give to anyone wanting to pursue a PhD in marine biology? I think giving advice is always a difficult one. There's so much that I'd like to share my wisdom almost. I think it's definitely been difficult coming into a PhD. And my biggest advice would be to find something that you're passionate about. A PhD is quite a long time. And I think you're never going to be at a state where you're loving every single second. I think there's always going to be ups and downs, just like any other job, but it's to enjoy the process, to just do something you love and really run with it. And even if there are down days, just sort of pick yourself up and think, okay, I remember why I'm doing this and I'm just going to do it for these reasons. And I think a PhD for me has just been so eye-opening, life-changing, met so many amazing people along the way, and I wouldn't change it for anything. Do you find that you have enough time alongside the PhD to follow your personal passions, to, to keep hold of your identity and to be who you really are? I always started the PhD with this mentality that it is almost like a job. Well, it essentially is a job. You can work less hours. And I think coming into it was quite easy because I'd worked an office job before I went back to university. So I'd had a break after my undergrads and I got into this routine where I was working as a data analyst and I was working eight to four Monday to Friday. So coming into the PhD, I really treated it as, okay, I'm going to be productive. I'm trying to focus the hours I am at work. I rarely work on the weekends so I can manage that time, have hobbies. I can do things that I like for me. And I think it is how you approach it and, and take it on as a big sort of undertaking. You can manage to do both things and have this PhD and have a life or maintain yourself and your hobbies.
it's nice to know that you can keep that balance because I think it's really important. And I have to ask about your experience in data analysis. Has that actually helped you in the PhD in some ways? I think it's potentially helped me. I think one thing that my job as a data analyst taught me was that I wanted to get back into the lab and that I loved my scientific research, whereas my data analyst role was completely different. It was on energy bills and stuff like that. So it wasn't really in the field that I wanted. And I think doing something completely different just gave me that push to be like, this is not what you want to do. So go into science because that's what you want to do. And I think any days where I have these down days, I just remember, well, at least it's not this other job. But I think in the terms of using the skills that I learned from my data analyst job, it's definitely helped me. Very, very good point. I think sometimes it's doing something that we don't want to do that shows us what we really should be doing. And it makes that experience just as valuable because it ends up pushing you in the right direction. I think this is one of the biggest take homes is that you can always try so many different things and it's fine if you hate it because you know that you don't need to try it again or you don't need to do it. You can close that door and maybe try something else. Absolutely. Yes. Who are your inspirations either in the world of research and academia or outside of it? I would say I'm not someone who has specific inspirations that I would look up to in terms of research. I think what I find as a whole in research is that even someone who we wouldn't know has made a small contribution to where we are today. And that is something that I find really inspiring is that there's just this community of scientists that sometimes you know who they are, or you don't, but we're all pushing ourselves towards a common goal. And it's this community of people that are really just pushing towards one end goal. And I think that just inspires me to keep working and, and continue doing what I'm doing. Because even if my results right now don't help massively with climate change, I know five, 10 years down the line, my research is going to help the next person. And, and that's how I see it now, that research I'm doing now, I'm looking on people's work from years ago. And that's always so inspiring that if they didn't do that work, I wouldn't be here today. So I think I just look at it more as a community rather than specific people or idols. That's a wonderful perspective. And I think it really is a great, vast community with so many people working at so many different levels. And it's why stories like yours are so important and why it's so important for us to share them, because it's an inspiration, ultimately. Thank you so much. That really means the world to me. So, Yaz, your story is really fascinating and it's been a great pleasure to talk to you about it today. How can our listeners reach you if they would like to get in touch or learn more about your work? My main platforms that you can reach me on are Instagram, which my at is at Marine Biology with Yaz. Yaz is spelled with a Z on the end. And I also have a website which you can find at www.marinebiowithyaz.com. You can send me an email, you can find it through the link on my Instagram or from my website. And I'd be more than happy to talk to you if you want to share your experience or just get some advice on your future career. And that website is full of interesting things as well, I should add. <laughs> thank you very much. Yaz, thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful to chat to you. Thank you so much, Jordan, and to the Research Beat for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. For more on Yaz and the magic of diatoms, you can find her on Instagram or go to her website, 
marinebiowithyaz.com. And to listen to all kinds of research, take notes and share, sign up for your free trial of Audemic at audemic.io or follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram.